This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Kanyokahage Nation in Chashage, also known as Montreal, Quebec, the original lands of many First Nations, including the Kanyokahage of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Huron-Wendat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabe. When we engage with and exist in digital spaces like this one right now, it's really important to think about the implications of the forces of colonialism that played such a huge part in shaping this kind of technology. The roots of so much of today's technology stem from colonial motives of surveillance and militarization and control. Understanding the ways in which technology isn't neutral and is in fact entrenched in systems of colonization is a really important process that we all should engage with in order to reflect on our own positionality in digital spaces. To learn what land you're on, go to native-land.ca. Welcome back. I'm really excited to be sitting down and recording again. It's been a couple weeks. I took some time off because I got to see my family, which was really, really lovely. Um, Really, really sweet time. And it was nice to just like not have to worry about putting something out and just being in the moment. And I got lots of that. So I'm really happy that I took that time. But I also missed brainstorming and recording and hearing from you. And so today I thought we could start a fun little conversation that I've been thinking about a lot, especially the past, like, I guess two days. It hasn't been that long. But the weather's been getting nice. The sun is out to play. The temperature is rising. Sundresses are coming out. And I'm realizing that this transition from springtime to summertime is truly the internalized male gaze's favorite time of the year. And it's really gotten me thinking a lot about this lingering presence of this gaze in my own mind. And I noticed it especially um, the other day when I found myself consciously thinking about how other people were perceiving me as I like frolicked down the sidewalk in my sundress. This particular instance, which I'll sort of talk about in a sec, just got me thinking about performance and the performance of desire to cater towards the narrative of the male gaze and of heterosexuality and of capitalism, which I don't know if we'll get too deep into the capitalist narrative in this episode, but mainly I'm just thinking about the male gaze and how prevalent it is once you break out those sundresses and once your shoulders start showing and once you let your legs out to breathe it's just this like heightened awareness of how we are being perceived and how we look and how we're being desired or undesired in the world when we've got certain limbs out on display and even that language like out on display as though our bodies are like museum exhibitions to be examined and to be critiqued and objectified which like maybe they kind of are in a way but for me that just feels like a really disempowering way to look at one's body and one's body in the public eye but I mean that's how it feels sometimes and even the other day like this is 
kind of what sparked this episode. The other day, it got really warm out, and I was on my walk. I, like, wore, like, a light jacket over top of my dress because I knew that it was warm out, but it wasn't that warm. And anyway, it got warm out, and I took off my jacket, and I was wearing this really sweet little summer dress. Um, It's, like, a linen fabric, really comfy, flowy, had spaghetti straps and this, like, high slit up the side, And it's like this creamy white color. So it was very, I was just like feeling it. I was like, yes, this is the summer moment I am wanting. Hell yeah. But then it was like, as soon as I took off my jacket, it was like this switch went off in my brain. Like the switch that's supposed to remind me that I'm not the main character of the universe and not every man ever is staring at me when I've got my shoulders out in in the world all exposed. And I just kept thinking about like, who was looking at me. And I really noticed in the moment, I noticed this shift in my thinking. And then I started to get annoyed with myself. Like, oh my God, like, why are you being so self-centered? No one's looking at you. You're not the main character. Who do you think you are? And I was having this like little battle going on in my brain that took me out of the present moment. Like I was so busy arguing with myself over like being super aware of these like men that were walking by and looking at me or like people that were in their car and I was like oh my god are they looking at me through the window or whatever and being so so aware of that and then simultaneously being annoyed that I was so aware of that because I don't know there there's this kind of like shittiness that comes with being self-aware once you name your internalized male gaze for what it is and you know what it is and you know how it functions and you know that it's destructive But once you know that, it almost makes things worse because it's like you're out in the world and you're noticing the male gaze and you're feeling it in your brain and then you get mad at yourself because it's like you're not being a feminist because you're so focused on how these men are looking at you. And it's horrible. Like, it sucks. And what happened here is that, like, I was so busy battling with myself in my own head that I couldn't fully enjoy this glory of having the warm sun on my bare back for the first time in like almost a year. I was robbed. (laughs) I was robbed of this like romantic moment with myself and my baguette and my bottle of wine in my tote bag that I'd gotten for a dinner with myself. And I was having this sweet old time. But this romantic moment was taken away from me because I was so busy being concerned with how I was being perceived by this internalized male gaze of mine. I think that feeling, like feeling like you've been robbed, is a really universal thing for women and queer people. Anybody whose bodies are like systematically sexualized and objectified and it's like a normal thing when you go out into the world and you're expecting harassment or you're expecting some kind of objectification. And you do feel robbed. You just want to, like, go out and get your baguette and your wine, or you just want to go meet your friend at the park, or you just want to go to the grocery store. But you can't just enjoy the walk of going to the grocery store because you're so hyper-aware of all of the eyes around you, even if they're not looking at you. Even if no one is looking at you and no one is catcalling you or making any comments, It's the awareness that that might happen. It's the awareness that someone might be looking at you and thinking gross things. The probability, not even just like the chance, the probability, the likelihood that someone is looking at you and feeling that way 
it robs you of just like a peaceful walk to the grocery store. And it just got me thinking like how many romantic moments with myself have I missed out on because I've been too caught up in the internalized male gaze in my own head. And there are moments where I can escape that and just completely be in the moment with myself when I get to indulge in that romanticism of life, especially when I'm out on my own. Like I love going home alone late at night on the metro and feeling okay, like feeling safe, which is a very rare thing, but it does happen. And I'm going home and I've got my music in and I'm listening to some romantic song that just makes me feel all the feelings and I step off the bus and I walk up to my apartment and I unlock the door and I just feel like wow the whole world is my oyster and it's these like fleeting glimpses of what life might be like if we didn't constantly have to worry about the danger of being alone at night as a woman or as a queer person. It's when I can escape that sort of hyper awareness, that fear, that life feels the absolute sweetest because I just get to be with myself in those moments and I just get to enjoy the late night metro ride or the sunny walk in my cute little sundress. But it does piss me off that those moments seem to be so rare and so precious. Like, please, can we just have more uninterrupted romantic moments with ourselves? Can I just romanticize my life without the male gaze for one second? So since this like sidewalk sundress incident, I've just been thinking about the performance of desirability and the feminine tendency to center desirability in every social performance we're in, whether we actually want to or not. And it got me thinking about me as a teenager and how obsessed I was with the idea of being every guy's cool girl with just a splash of manic dreaminess, even if I didn't find a guy attractive or even remotely want to pursue something with him. This performance of being the cool girl, the manic pixie dream girl, would still come out almost involuntarily. One might even say it was compulsory. (laughs) To tie back to compulsory heterosexuality, I think Compet definitely had a lot to do with it. And I know this now only because of how certain I am in my queerness, but it's crazy thinking back to how many times I tried to convince myself that I was into a boy or into sex or into the idea of a heterosexual relationship when really I was faking the whole fucking thing and just had no idea that that's what I was doing. Because not only did I not have representation, but I didn't have the language to identify it. There's this idea that I've definitely talked about on the podcast before is that like for so much of my life, I've been more concerned with being perceived as desirable to certain men than I have with actually paying attention to my own desires, which means that I was performing authenticity in a good chunk of my relationships simply because I thought that being the right kind of desirable meant that I was also having my desires fulfilled. I had this idea that like being the quirky, sexy, cool girl would somehow fulfill me and my desires as much as it would for the people that I was with or the people that I was interacting with. And this wasn't even just with men either. I don't think that I even escaped this trap when I was in relationships with women or interacting with other queer women. I definitely remember being aware of the struggle of like getting out of that box of feeling the need to perform what I thought these queer women would desire from me, whether that was 
being more masculine, more dominant, or leaning really deeply into my feminine side, being submissive, or being the like manic pixie dream girly bisexual that was just here to make your dreams come true. It's just interesting to think about how even in my queerest relationships, there was always a lingering nudge to perform something. Although it was definitely less and it was different, it was still there. And I think this probably also had to do with my age and being a teenager and so disconnected from my true self and not knowing what my desires were and not knowing how to voice that. But I think that that like performing of desirability is so interesting seeing it show up in all interactions and all relationships whether they were queer or not queer because it just shows that it's not about the relationship it's about the conditioning that you have going into those relationships and obviously you know relationships can mold that and shift and shape shift sort of what that desire might look like depending on who you're dating whether it's some artsy outcast boy who wants you to dress like a manic pixie dream girl and listen to the smiths with him and write him poetry and sort of live like the circa 2014 tumblr fantasy or the woman you're dating wants you to perform some kind of butchness there's always some kind of projected expectation some kind of expected performance when you get into a relationship, no matter what relationship that is. And you know, it's a very human, natural thing to do. I'm not saying it's inherently negative, but it is something we all do when we meet someone, even not not even just talking about romantic relationships, but when you meet someone, you create a bunch of ideas about them and you do project onto them, whether it's your expectations or your wants or your desires about who they will be in your life. Those are definitely there. And the most beautiful relationships come from those initial encounters where you don't project onto people, where you just meet them where they're at. You just see them for who they are. And the feeling is mutual. It's reciprocal. You meet each other where you're at and then something gorgeous blossoms from it. But the rarity of these relationships and the commonality of performing a sense of desirability and performing what you think other people expect of you shows us how compulsory it is, which also tells us that we're not paying enough attention to what we actually want, what we find desirable, and also how we want to show up as desirable for other people. For me, a lot of my own realizations about desirability and about this performance that I had been indulging in for so long, those realizations were really wrapped up in my coming into my queerness and realizing what I genuinely desired and what I wanted to desire me. And that's what helped me sort of crawl my way out of the pit of the male gaze fantasy that I had been embodying in different manifestations, whether it was the manic pixie dream girl or the cool girl or the not like other girls girl. And of course, like they lingered, those things lingered for sure. Like I said, I wasn't totally immune to these performances, even when I was with other women. But just being out and single and openly queer or being in openly queer relationships, these things gave me the space to start questioning those performances that I had been so invested in and start asking myself, what I really desired and what I wanted to invest my energy into being perceived as desirable to like the right people, to the people that I actually wanted to be connected with, which were often total opposites of what the male gaze had been telling me my entire life. 
I kind of want to switch gears a little bit, but connect, still connecting back to this. I want to talk about one of my favorite books by Emma Klein um, called The Girls, which I think I may have talked about before. Um, but I want to tell like a little bit of a funny story about this book and then connect it back to what we're talking about here. So what's funny about this book is that I originally bought it when I was like 15 or so, maybe even 14, and I bought it. <laughs> I still remember this so vividly. Because the little description of the book that it had on the inside of the cover mentioned the main character of the book, who is a girl, developing a sort of fixation, a romantic obsession on this other girl. And it wasn't that explicit. Like, it wasn't like, this is a queer book. But you could just kind of tell by the language that, like, there was going to be some queer shit that happened in it. And I don't even know, I don't even remember if I consciously thought, like, oh, yeah, this book is gay. <laughs> but I remember that little detail of the description made me excited, so excited that I bought the book. But the funny thing is that I only read a few pages and then... I just like forgot about it. There was like other stuff going on in my life and I just, I didn't finish the book. But then last year I found it on my bookshelf and I decided to like sit down and properly read it cover to cover. And when I tell you that this book feels like it took a chunk of my brain from the age of 14 or 15 and used it to write a story, like it's so interesting to me that I bought this book around that age and that the contents were so illuminating and so validating and so relative to what I was going through at exactly that time. But I didn't read it. Like, I didn't read it when I probably needed to most. But then I guess I sort of had the realization that reading it at the age that I did, I was 21 when I read it, so much older and more experienced and more aware of what I was going through at the age of 14, 15, I don't know that I actually would have, like, gotten what it was trying to speak to me. Emma Klein's writing of, like, young teenage girls is so blunt and so real and so honest that I feel like I wouldn't have gotten it. I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's almost like it was too real to me at the time. Like, it spoke too clearly, too loudly that it would have just gone right over my head. Like, I wouldn't have gotten the message that it was trying to say. Anyway, there's a few different passages from the book that I would love to read out, but unfortunately, I think a friend is borrowing it at the moment, and so I can't read right out of it. But luckily, I did write one of them down like a long time ago, um, and I want to share it just because it still feels so true to my experience as a 14, 15-year-old girl performing Desire for Boys and for this like heterosexual narrative. So this is the quote. So much of desire at that age was a willful act, trying so hard to slur the rough, disappointing edges of boys into the shape of someone we could love. We spoke of our desperate need for them with rote and familiar words like we were reading lines from a play. Later, I would see this, how impersonal and grasping our love was, pinging around the universe, hoping for a host to give form to our wishes. I think this quote just sums up exactly what I want to say about performance and desirability and female teenagehood. All these ideas that I've been trying to explore in this episode, like naming desire as a willful act at the age of 14 as a young girl is just like so brilliant to me. Just 
willing love, willing desire into existence by shifting and molding the boys around us into these things that maybe we could love somehow, but only if we will ourselves into it, only if we convince ourselves that that is what we want. Since I don't have my copy with me, I just googled uh, I just googled some more quotes because there's just there's so many good things from this book that I think are really relevant to this conversation. And there's another one that I want to share. All that time I had spent readying myself, the articles that taught me life was really just a waiting room until someone noticed you. The boys had spent that time becoming themselves. That one is just so beautiful to me because it really speaks to that construction of desirability and of femininity that so many girls and so many queer people go through and that line that life was really just a waiting room until someone noticed you oh it's so good it's so good and that the boys had spent all of that time that we were getting ourselves ready in that waiting room for someone to notice us that they had spent that time becoming themselves learning about themselves, learning about their desires, their hopes and their dreams and their wishes for this life. Oh my god, it's so good. (laughs) I really think that the takeaway for this week is just everyone go buy a copy of The Girls and then we can all talk about it together. I think that that's a really good plan. Okay, one more quote that I think is so good and maybe a good way to end the conversation. Other people's admiration asked something of you that you had to shape yourself around it. I think that that one sticks so hard and could be used in so many different contexts, but the way that I'm understanding it in relation to this conversation is that other people's admiration or desire of you asks you to shape yourself around it, to sort of mold yourself into that object of desire, regardless of whether you want to or not. Like the act of someone finding you desirable in a specific way sort of makes you subconsciously mold yourself into that in order to continue receiving that validation even if you don't want that validation and I think that that's what the male gaze does is it tricks us into shaping ourselves and our ideas of desire into a very specific shaped box that we for the rest of our lives will continue to try to fit into even if we're not doing it consciously in the way that we check ourselves out in the mirror before we leave the house, in the way we put on makeup, in the way we choose to get dressed, in our awareness of and response to stares that we get in public, we are constantly shaping ourselves around this male gaze. Whew, I feel like that is a good note to end on. I am feeling so invigorated by this conversation and I hope that you're feeling the same. I know that it's one-sided, so I, I can't, I, I wish I could be talking to you and hearing all of your thoughts as well, and we could we could throw stuff back at each other, but maybe we can do that in my DMs. If you feel like reaching out, you can always hit me up at the lily.pod on Instagram, and I would love to have a conversation with you. I am really excited about hearing all your thoughts, if you have any to share about the male gaze in connection to summertime and how that affects our performance and our awareness of people around us and of ourselves in relation to space and in relation to people so if you have any thoughts at all please tell me them I would love to connect with you 
And in the meantime, I am wishing you luck in breaking out all those sundresses and feeling great and wonderful and free and free of the male gaze as you wear them out in public. That is all I wish for you this week, if that's part of your life. And if it's not, then I am wishing you all the wonderful things, all the wonderful free of male gazey vibes. And I will talk to you all soon.